Let me ask this question. Does it matter to us at Calvary that we clearly understand the gospel, the good news announcement about Jesus? Do we value at Calvary Baptist Church a letter written in the New Testament, the book of Romans, whose sole purpose is getting the gospel right? Do we understand that getting the gospel wrong is a thing of eternal consequence? So it is of some import, indeed, to understand with clarity the gospel. Could a passage showing a Jewish home movie of Abraham's life clarify the good news for us? God moved Paul to write Romans chapter 4. And that's where we are this morning. Just this week, I met a neat guy who had lived for a season in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, enjoying sports, and and I I may be unduly given to sports illustrations from time to time. There's one dear congregant, we, we... we love her, but she, she'll, she'll, she keeps an anthology of how many sports references I have. So I'm going to get a couple marks this morning. But it's okay. They're good marks, and she she's, appreciate what God is doing here. Uh, but I ask him, of course, hey, Boston, you lived in Boston? Really? Have you been to a game at Fenway Park, a baseball game, where the Boston Red Sox have played a famous baseball stadium. Oh, he said, yes. He said, the year they won the world championship, I was there. I went, not, I went to nine games, and they were 9-0 and oh that year. I said, you're kidding. He said, yeah, I only lived there for a couple years. I went back the next year to seven games, and they were 0-7, oh the seven games I went that year. But, um, yeah, yeah, and I said, oh, okay, have you, have you been... If you're from Boston, Boston, if you've been to Boston and you've lived in Boston, have you been to see the Boston Celtic basketball team play at the Boston Garden? He said, yeah, I have. I said, did did you see Larry Bird play in the Garden? Oh, yeah, I did all that. That's great. Can I, you know, I want to, can I touch your arm, please? You know, if if you've done that. Now, I ask him then, now look, and if you're from Boston, and um, it's not one of the Kennedys, then right up there, iconically, of personalities in the Boston area, is the great Boston baseball player named Carl Yaskrimski. So I said to him, look, for any reason, and mixing it up with everybody there in Boston and going to civic things and being in these important positions and going to this, did you ever meet Carl Yaskrimski? He said, no, I, I, I never met Carl Yaskrimski. Now, what Carl Yaskrimski is to Boston, Massachusetts, Abraham is to the Jewish nation. He's the revered forefather. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And so, if you're going to seek to persuade or influence a Jewish person, What you want to do is you want to parade Abraham out and just for good measure, add King David, their greatest king, anticipating Jesus Christ, of course. That's exactly what Paul does here in Romans chapter 4. 
We've just finished Romans chapter 3 and going through this extraordinary epistle. He gets into chapter 4. You say, Eric, what's he doing here? What he's doing here is he's pushing back against the Jewish crowd who's saying, how dare you say that knowing God is based simply on the free gift of salvation offered in Jesus Christ. How dare you say that, Paul? And so what he does is he uses their scriptures, the Old Testament, uses their heroes, Abraham and David, to explain with clarity the gospel, which he starts through again in the first eight verses of Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read them to you from the English Standard Version. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this morning, in a plan, I want to take you through the logic of the gospel. There are three facets to the reasoning that Paul uses in these eight verses. Let's go through them together. And then... We'll ask, we'll look at three greatest, the greatest miscalculation, the greatest strategy for living, and the greatest resolution ever enacted. So that's the plan of attack this morning, going first one direction with the logic, three facets of the logic, and secondly, we'll look at three greatest. What is the logic the gospel. Now, as we go through these verses, and you heard me read them to you, please note that uh, we're going to accent a word five times he uses the word count or reckon. That's going to be a very important word for him to under, uh, urging us to understand the good news about Jesus with clarity. It's this word reckon or count five times, no less, in eight verses He's accenting it. Now, first, what is the logic of the gospel? Now, many of us wear glasses. Uh, I, I must lead the lig in the most skin grease imprinted on the interior side of my glasses than anybody in the world. Uh, and then what's worse is I will become unconscious to it. Uh, and and my, my vision will begin to fade away, and whether it's my perspiration. I don't even know how it happens. I still don't. It's jacked away from my skin, but I don't know what it is. I'll just get big grease spots, and over time, they just get worse. 
And uh, you are also kind. I can't think of one of you apart from my wife, and she's kind too, but she's just honest with me. Uh, she'll, she'll come up to me and she'll say, Eric, give me your glasses. I'll say, what's wrong? She'll say, give them to me. And so I'll give them to her, and she'll clean the layers of grease that have laid up, whether it's my skin or perspiration. I don't know what, I don't even know what it is. But she'll clean them off and she'll hand them back. And I'll go, I can't believe it. I can see with great clarity. What'd you do? She said, I just cleaned the grease off your glasses. That's all I did. Now, there's a sense in which Romans chapter 4 is like the Apostle Paul coming to us in our understanding and saying, give me your glasses. Let me clarify it for you. Let me make it crystal clear. And he does so with three lines of logic. Line of logic, number one, even Father Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. We cannot overstate the fact that to the Jewish people, the religious folks of the day, Abraham was their hero. Abraham could do no wrong. Abraham was held up as the prime example. Who did they want to be like? They wanted to be like Abraham. In fact, the rabbis taught this about their hero, Abraham. Let's look at Jubilees, a Jewish writing, not inspired, not in the Bible, but uh, the rabbis wrote this, Jubilees 23.10. Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by, that's going to be a very important word in the force of this logic of that verse, by his righteousness throughout his life. You read that, this is what the rabbis taught. So the rabbis are teaching all little good Jewish boys and girls, here's the deal. Here's what you do. You just be righteous enough. Be just like Abraham. And by your righteousness, just like by his righteousness, he gained this status with God that was perfect. So let's all keep aspiring to be perfect. By the way, I've been down that lane wondering for years whether or not I was obeying enough, whether I was good enough, whether I'd repented enough, whether I had prayed enough, whether because it seemed all to be based on me. Then someone wondrously introduced me to the gospel, clearly understood, which is that I simply needed to trust God and in the gift of righteousness that he gives me. It wasn't me, but it's him. It's because Jesus is perfect and Jesus' death was acceptable that in believing in Jesus, I could have life and that I could come to be forgiven. You talk about a weight off my back. I then quit trying to worry about whether or not I had been good enough and started working at developing an affectionate relationship for this one who loved me. Jesus, and gave himself for me. And Paul's in the middle of explaining that. You can understand why, if Abraham was their hero and the uh, rabbis taught that he was perfect and therefore found acceptable because he was perfect and in his righteousness, you could understand why they would take up a little umbrage if Paul was saying, hey, Let's Okay, you want to talk about Abraham? Let me talk to you about Abraham. And he takes them back to Genesis 15, 6, what Steve read well this morning. Remember, God had promised Abraham he'd be the father of a great nation. He's an old man and his wife has passed childbearing years. And he's thinking, well, 
How's that going to work out? And God comes to him one night and says, Abraham, I want to renew that promise I've made to you. And it was a starry night, no clouds. And he said, I want you to look up and see. And he just looked up. He saw the stars. And he said, Abraham, see the stars. I'm going to make you a great nation more than the stars of the sky. And Abraham said, amen. Literally, that's what he, he, he believed God. He trusted that God's promise was true and became the father of a great nation. But since Abraham's status with God was a gift given to him by God, he couldn't brag about what he got. And so this phrase is really important at the end of verse 2. And remember, we've been talking about bragging in the text. Did you note 327? You'll remember we talked about that. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. So fast forward to 4.2. Okay, yeah, Abraham could brag, I suppose, but not before God. Nobody has any right to brag about anything before God. All that we bring him is our sinfulness. And what's extraordinary about the gospel is he offers us his grace. What a savior. So there's no bragging. Now this would have rubbed against the sensibilities of the Jewish folk to bring their hero out and tell him he's not as heroic as you think he is. You know why he was made righteous, made acceptable before God? It came in the gift of righteousness. All he did was believe. And it's in believing the gospel that we come to be righteous. Exhibit A, Abraham. Now the second facet of, uh, remember, they all aspired to be like Abraham. No doubt for a couple years in Jewish history, they must have used those little bracelets. W-W-A-D, what would Abraham do? You know, they probably did that. Probably had that one of those kind of things going on. But he tells them, here's what Abraham did that you need to mimic. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now, the second facet of the logic is this. Abraham was counted righteous when he believed. He was made acceptable by receiving the promise of God. And when he believed, that is the moment that he was declared righteous. So here's their leader. Now, spoiler alert for the rest of Romans 4. What he's going to do is he's going to argue the timing issues are important. So he's going to lay out a timeline and he's going to ask the reader, when was Abraham declared righteous? He's going to start talking about his life. You say, oh, Abraham obeyed God. Ah, ha, ha. Paul, see, you're wrong. He was righteous because he obeyed God. Uh, Abraham, uh, he, he, he took his son. Oh, Abraham was circumcised because later he will tell him, you know, be circumcised. And okay, so he, he obeys. Then he obeys uh, this uh, call to have the emblem that would mark the male Jewish body as faithful to the covenant of God. See, he, he was circumcised. Okay, well, th- then he must have been almost righteous there, Eric. But then when he was given his son, Abraham, he was given Isaac, and he took him up, Genesis 22, on Mount Moriah, and he, he was even willing to offer up his own son in sacrifice and obedience to the Lord. It must have been then that the Lord said, okay, now I know, I know what's in your heart. You're righteous now. You're righteous enough. You've... Uh, 
just uh, infused enough righteousness in your ledger. Uh, you know when he's declared righteous? And this is spinning out the timeline. It's before any of that ever started. So you say, Eric, oh, he was righteous because he was circumcised. Really? He was righteous because he obeyed. Really? He was righteous because he was willing to offer his son up. You know, he, he, he really? Well, how comes in the Bible, in the timeline, he's declared righteous here before any of that starts? So it takes away the force of their argument that we kind of get righteous, an obedient act at a time in infused righteousness. He was imputed righteousness the moment he believed before any of that started. It's not saying any of that is not important. But that doesn't represent why he's made righteous. He's made righteous before that ever came. So that's what's going on here logic-wise. Now, let's come to this word counted, this word reckoned. Now, there's two spheres out of which this term comes. One is any certified public accountants here this morning. The accountants among us, they like this word, reckoned. It's a word for a ledger entry in the books. You're keeping track of things in the books, and you make a ledger entry. You reckon the entry into the books. It's logged. It's considered. It's officially counted. Now, there's also a use for this term that comes out of the court system. It comes out of law. It's a state that we are declared to be in. Uh, By that, I mean uh, judicially, uh, the judge uh, can declare something about you which in the eyes of the law, you are what the judge declares you are. The, the, the fancy term for this is forensic righteousness. That the judge says you're righteous, and if the one who's making the judgment says you're righteous, then you are righteous. And this is, Martin Luther says, this is what's marvelous about the gospel, because we are at the self-same time declared to be righteous while still a sinner. This is the glory of grace because it's based on the gracious judgment of God and not on how good we are at obeying. News to self, we're not good at obeying. Remember, he's going to get to the purpose of the law, Romans 7, and you know, the law just reminds us that we are, are not right. So this word reckon. So Abraham was reckoned righteous when he believed. Now the third facet of the logic is this. King David identified the blessed people as forgiven people. Romans 4, 6, 7, and 8. So he, I mean, this is like the Jewish all-star team. He's finished talking about Abraham momentarily. He's going to come back to him. And he moves on to King David. Again, if you want to move a Jewish crowd with persuasion, bring up Abraham, bring up David. Oh, yeah, David, we're for David. Well, here's what David said. David defined who the blessed man was. By the way, Dallas Willard in a former generation when he was the chairman of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California, a devoted follower of Jesus, said this. Humanity is given to ask four fundamental questions. One of the fundamental questions was this. Who lives the blessed life? Who is the blessed person? Now, I'll ask somebody sometimes, hey, how are you doing? They'll say, oh, I'm blessed. And um, it, it's really an attractive answer. Uh, it's winsome. 
Uh, now, now, some people say it with a lot of pompous, and it's like, oh, okay, you know. Uh, but, um, but some, they carry around in their spirit a sense that they are blessed by God. And I love that. Who is the person who's blessed? If we were to interview David, King David, come up here. I mean, your son Solomon was the wisest man on earth. You're a man after God's own heart. Tell us, David, who are the blessed people? He would say, the most blessed people on earth are the forgiven. And there's a lot of us in this room who understand what he was talking about. And it's unbelievable what he says. Now, in legal terms, there is a uh, term that is used. It's called expunge. This is a fascinating word. Uh, it's one of those, uh, is the phrase onomatopoetic? It kind of sounds like what it is. You know, take a sponge and wash off the dirt. It's expunged. What you do to expunge something is to erase or remove it completely. Uh, I was talking to Bill Dickens in the last five years one time, and he told me about the, the handbook, the student handbook at Calvary Christian School. Uh, there is a way, actually, to expunge marks on your record if along the way you've gotten accrued marks on your record that will stick in some way. You can go through some things and have it entirely removed, have it expunged. I thought of that. The 24th of February, 1969, in the career of Johnny Cash, the country and western singer in a former generation, that was a very important date for him. He went to San Quentin prison and he had offered a concert with his band. Now, before he got there, and by the way, he recorded a live album, Johnny Cash at San Quentin, released it, and it, it went double platinum. And I don't follow any of that. I had to kind of do research, dig into what, what even double platinum is, but it's good if your record goes double platinum. Well, what do you sing? Now, you know, in the midst of all its contradictions, there have been gospel strains in country music for a generation. I don't keep track of it now. Who knows where it is now, but there have been in former generations. So one of the songs that Johnny Cash records on this iconic album was one he premeditated and wanted to be sung in front of the inmates there. And it's a song entitled An Old Account Settled. Uh, Many of you are not old enough to have sung it. I have it here in shape notes in front of me from out of the old hymnal, the old country church I grew up in. But verse 3, and can you imagine Cash thundering this out with his band? I, I listened to the recording this week just to prepare for this morning. When at the judgment bar I stand before my king and he, the book will open, he cannot find a thing Then will my heart be glad while tears of joy will flow because I had it settled, settled long ago. And then there's several parts to sing in the chorus. Long ago, down on my knees. Long ago, I settled it all. When the old account was settled long ago. Well, my record's clear today for he washed my sin away. And the old account was settled long ago. Johnny Cash was reaching for those men incarcerated at San Quentin with that song. 
And he was celebrating the glory of the gospel. He's celebrating what David is talking about here. And David just doesn't lay it out once. He doesn't lay it out twice. He gives us the threefold glory of such a blessed state of being forgiven. Let's consider it together. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. At the heart of this word forgiven is the notion of being sent away. Remember the scapegoat, the priest would pray, uh, as it were, putting the sins of the people uh, on the scapegoat, and then he'd be sent out in the wilderness to leave, to be taken away, to be separated from. This is the term that was used of Jesus dispersing the crowds in the gospel. He would have those days of public ministry. All the crowds would be around. And at the end of the day, here's the verb. He'd say, he sent them all away. Eric, what happened to our sin when we believe in Jesus Christ? He sends them all away. They all go away. They're not around any longer whatsoever. Our lawless deeds are sent away. Now the next phrase in verse 7 is the second swipe he takes gloriously at forgiveness. Our sins are covered. The idea is to cover up, to cover over, to take the horrible blemish. And who is sitting here this morning whose past is not full of blemishes. Mine is gloriously covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Maybe you had a fine couch one day. We all had fine stuff before kids came. And, uh, and it's glorious to have the kids, you know, rip up the fine stuff that we have. But maybe we, little Johnny was sitting on that couch. Shouldn't have been, but was. Had him a cup of grape juice. And little Johnny put an iconic stain right on the central pad of that couch in the living room. And, um, you know, we were so upset at the moment. Later on, we laughed about it. But we kind of got tired of looking at it. We said, you know, that, that's, that looks awful. It looks like a purple cloud on the couch in the living room. You know, and it's a light couch. What are we going to do? Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll get a covering to put over it. So that when the covering is put on it, nobody can see. They can come in this living room. They can sit on the couch. But nobody will even know that one time, one day, little Johnny uncorked with a vat of grape juice and reconfigured that couch. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. Covering up our sin so it's not seen. There's a fascinating image in the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah says, God takes our sin, he puts it right in the middle of his back. What the? Why would he put it in the middle of his back? What's he, what's he want with our sin in the middle of his back? I'll tell you what, I have never seen anything in the middle of my back. Ever. I can't see it. So I could have something really terrible in the middle of my back, but not seeing it, it would not be on my mind, and I would not be concerned about it, because to me, it's virtually gone. That's what God has done with our sin in Jesus Christ. Covered. Now, the third way, it's not enough to go one round. It's not enough to celebrate. The third round is this. The Lord will not count his sin. He will not reckon it. He will not reckon us culpable of it. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not 
count, there's our word again, the fifth time in these eight verses, his sin. It's a word that means calculate or consider. Have it before him. It's gone. Let's say that uh, you know, our credit score goes up and down based upon our spending life. The obligations that we incur. Now this is not true and I'm not arguing for policy. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching for an illustration to help you under this reckoning, this counting and, and coming to a point where God is not counting our sin against us in the blessedness of forgiveness. Let's say they pass a law, again, not arguing for public policy, that says when it relates to our credit scores, if we have a bunch of debt that is related to health care, that doesn't count against our credit score. So we may owe St. E's $65,000, but they look at the statute and say, yeah, but we can't take that into consideration when we give that person a credit score. That's the concept. God, in appraising us before him, remember he's pure apart from sin and holy, does not count our sin against us in the blessedness of forgiveness. Wow, what a savior. What an announcement. What a glory to know Jesus Christ. Micah 7, 18 and 19, it says, he he cast our sin into the depths of the sea. Erwin Lutzer is fond of saying, and then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. Because I don't know about you, but um, Satan will pay passage onto every fishing excursion I want to take and remember where I've been that had needed forgiveness. Are you plagued by the thought of unconfessed sin? What a great morning to be here. I have the best news to tell you. If we confess our sin, he's faithful to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then that verb, cleanse, is a verb, the present active tense, to cleanse us and keep on cleansing us and keep on cleansing us and keep on cleansing. I don't know about you, but I need the keep on cleansing part. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you believed the gospel? This is the benefit. What are the three greatest The force of the gospel's logic leads us to several greatest. Let's open our heart and think about these three. First, the greatest miscalculation for eternity is to live life believing we can work our way to heaven. Look at verses 4 and 5. The Bible cannot be more clear than 4-5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Delano Robinson pastors the Great Commission Bible Church in Cincinnati. We had the joy of being with his church when Richard Allen Farmer came here on our Sunday night concert. As a little boy growing up in Chicago, one of his friends went to a gospel church that had Awana. And he decided as a little boy he'd go with them one night. And man, he loved the games. They played in a gymnasium and he loved that. Then they said, hey, we're going to go upstairs for the Bible story. He didn't like the sound of that. He thought, oh, I don't You know, who cares about that? And a guy sat down with him, got to know his name, listened to his story. And up to that point, even as a little boy, he thought, I think being pretty good in life, just try to be pretty good and you'll be okay with God 
Because you're trying to be pretty good. That was his notion about relating to God. He didn't need all that other stuff upstairs in the Iwana lessons. And the guy just opened his Bible in front of a little boy, and he said, I want to read you one verse. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He said, it was as if when I read those words, to the one who does not work, my confidence began to seep out of my heart, my confidence in my ability to be found acceptable by God through what I was doing, trying to be pretty good. We love to earn it, as John Houseman used to say a long time ago in commercials for Smith Barney. Well, I loved growing up on my Uncle Dick's Jersey dairy farm, and I was a regular, but we'd have casual help come time and again on the high days of work. We'd have the spring rains, and that first cut of hay, there'd be a lot, and Uncle Dick would need to feed the herd through the winter, and so each of those cuts of hay were important, and we needed to stick it in the barn, and so he'd mow the hay down, and he'd pick out just the right day, and he'd, he'd watch the weather, and um, then he did the same thing every time. He would get the... Um, fullbacker, middle linebacker for the football team, that guy always loaded because he was strong enough to load all day, and so he would load. And then I couldn't breathe in the hay mound because of hay fever, so I was outside. I was the unloader. And then all the minions would go up in the mound, and I'd throw the bales on the hay or on the elevator and get them up there. And oh, just wonderful, wonderful days. I, I, I savor them even today. And it'd take me a long time to break down the load in the beginning, and they'd be up there just making fun of me in the uh, hay mound. And so then as soon as I broke it down, I could increase the pace on the elevator, and I would just try to put as many bales as I could till they start yelling at me to, you know, stop, wait, we're behind, we're behind. You know, it, just great days. At the end of the day, usually right before milking, uh, we'd be done. We'd have it in a barn, and, we'd, and there were a few of us that hung around for milking. But he would call us, and he had a he had a check ledger. I've never seen one before. It's a big notebook. He'd open it up, and there's four perforated checks on each page. And, and so uh, we'd all stand there, and we'd walk up, you know. And now he pay, paid Bronco Nagurski more because of all the work he did by himself, you know. So he'd get the first check, and then and we'd stand up. But I'd go up there, and he'd write me out a check and okay, put it in my pocket. Now, when, he, when I put it in my pocket, I'd say to myself, okay, that's a good trade, Uncle Dick. I gave you my work, and you gave me that check. That was wages for my work, what I did. Well, what Paul is arguing is nobody does that with God. We're not going to go up to God and say, hey, here, let me give you, I'll trade you my life, uh, trying to be as righteous, my self-righteous life. I'll give you that. You, you give me heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. And that's what he's clearly pointing out here. Have you ever got to where you wanted to go and didn't have the right stuff to get in? I flew from Durban, South Africa to Dubai, then to Amman, Jordan. And I was booked on British Airways coming home. And I was kind of glad about it because once I got to London, I was going to be in business class to go over the pond. And, oh, that's good. Coach is hard on a big guy. And so I was looking forward to that. And, but they sold the stint from Amman to London to British Airways. So I have all my tickets and everything. And, and I know, you know, four souls in Amman. I don't know anybody's phone number. They take me up the airport, dump me out. And I walk up there and present my uh, stuff to British Airways and the uh, uh, Jordanian 
uh, clerks that were working there. And they said, uh, sir, we're not going to let you on the plane. I go, what? No. This ticket's no good. I go, wait a minute. This ticket's good. Well, British Airways in Amman wouldn't accept the British Midland ticket that I had. And so, you know, trauma starts coming around my heart. And I said, you, you go over there and sit down. I keep watching the clock. We're getting closer and closer and closer to boarding time. I'm not even checked through the, the opening part there. And I said, oh, boy, this, Lord, how is this going to turn out? I need your help. Well, finally, I think some lady felt sorry for me. And so she let me sit on the plane. They put my luggage in, but they were going to dump me out in London. I had to go back through and try to get hooked up. One of the problems was is they weren't answering the phone in London because it was in another part of the day. I was leaving really early in Amman and a different, a little bit of different time zone. And, and um, so that was horrible to get right to where I needed to go and not be able to get in. Now, I lived through it. It worked out. But I don't want you to stand before God after you die and give him some cheap resume of your self-righteousness, having thought all along that if you just be pretty good, you'll get in. There's going to be some awful, sinful people in heaven who've been forgiven and who believed in Jesus. There's going to be some really good people in hell who believed in their own self-righteousness. And that's a tragic miscalculation. Don't do it. If you're here this morning and that's where you've been, give it up. Transfer your trust from yourself and your self-righteousness. It's not going to pass muster. Get rid of those super red ball jets. You had to be here a couple weeks ago. And place your faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's when you are declared righteous and found acceptable in him. Secondly, the greatest strategy for living, look at 4.3. I underlined it in my Bible. For what does the scripture say? That's the greatest strategy for living. There's no more important question. Now, the, the, the question before us that follows this, do you know the answer to the question? What does the scripture say? How did Paul settle this discussion about how are we supposed to understand the good news about Jesus? He said, let's open the Bible. What do the scriptures say? By the way, he's talking to a Jewish crowd, so what does he do? He takes them to the Old Testament to help them understand the gospel. Because the Bible teaches that there is one way of salvation. Faith in the promise of God. There's not one way for the Old Testament and another way for the New Testament. Old Testament or New Testament, here is Paul explaining the gospel. Where does he go to explain the gospel? He goes to the book of Genesis, chapter 15 and verse 6. He goes to the book of Psalms, chapter 32. There's only one way to be saved, and it's faith in the promise of God. Look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks. What do the scriptures say? Do we know? What did David speak? What did David say about blessedness? That's what he uses to explain the gospel. When Warren Wiersbe left Calvary, he went to Moody Church in Chicago, an iconic flagship gospel church for a number of years. Then he left there and moved to Nebraska, where he took over Ted Epps' place in a former generation where radio broadcast ministry had a little bit of a different kind of role pre-internet. 
Back to the Bible broadcast. Who was going to replace Ted Epp but Warren Wiersbe? And he, he served him ably and served the group. But I, I always loved their name. Back to the Bible. The choosers of that name decided that they wanted to urge people to turn back to the Bible. Isn't that what Paul does in chapter 4 and verse 3 when he says, For what does the Scripture say? And then he goes on to say, verse 6, Just as David also speaks. How this stands in contradistinction to what the devil asked Eve in the garden. Did God really say... Where Paul says, let's turn back to what God has said, uh, the serpent challenged what God had actually said. Now, here's the problem with the church in the West. Many who say they are gospel Christians and follow Jesus, since it's just us kids, they don't know what the Bible says. For what does the Scripture say? They don't know. By the way, if you're 20 years old, Do you know what the Bible says? Now, the corollary question that really matters is, do you care what the Bible says? Forget if you're 20, if you're 15, or if you're 25, or if you're 50, or if you're 84. Do you know what the scriptures say? One of our R's, our four R's in our discipleship process is to renew our minds. We're working together in adult Bible fellowship classes, in life group discussions, in Calvary University to equip our minds to know the word of God. Have we developed a mode for living? Say, Eric, what what should be the strategy for how I live? How about this? What does the scripture say? And then obey it. Finally, the greatest resolution ever enacted is in verses 6, 7, and 8. And that is, our sin can be entirely settled. I have a friend who was caught in the backwash of the 2008 financial crisis. Like every other business person in America, he ran his business with the help of the bank. Followed the contracts. Well, in 2008 came. They knocked on his door and said, hey, we're going to call all these notes. What about the contract? We're calling all these notes now. Let's resolve them now. Got into a protracted discussion that involved lawyers, federal court, hearings, And it was a huge headache, and there was only one way out to resolve it. And rather than spend intractical years in federal court purgatory, he called his lawyer, he wrote a check, and it was over. When the price was paid that they demanded, Notwithstanding the contractual matters, because no one had foreseen the 2008 crisis, when he wrote the check, it was over. Now, there's only one problem with that illustration is he got himself out of a jam by paying the price. Here's the glory of the gospel. God got us out of the jam by paying the price. It was the death of Jesus. 
It was called euphemistically by the leadership in the Third Reich, the final solution. The final solution. The final solution was a euphemism for exterminating Jews in Europe so they wouldn't have to be dealt with anymore. And the Germans killed six million Jewish people in that thinking. It was tragic. And that's a tragic thought of a final solution. But God had a wonderful thought, a glorious thought of a final solution when he conceived of his plan of salvation and Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sin. Because right before he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, he said this, it is finished. It is finished. My buddy got up one morning before he went to UPS at 3.30 and he realized he had to clean the firebox out in his stove. He cleaned it out. He was in a hurry. He threw the ashes in a bucket and put it in his garage. Went to work and his house burned down. And um, I had went to high school with him. He's a great guy. And I, uh, I heard about it through the day. So I wanted to run him down. So I went over there. And he, uh, his dad, and I know this really well because this is my family. We come from great Appalachian stock. His dad was from some obscure place in eastern Kentucky. But he heard his son's house burn down. And he was getting up in years in, wasn't getting around too good. Rolled in his car. He wanted to see what happened. And his son's name is Jim, but they always called him Jimbo, or his dad always just called him Bo. And his dad swaggered into the house. They're all standing there. Everybody's lamenting the day. And his editorial comment, that his son told me, we, we laughed about it at the end of the day. He just walked in. He looked around. Nobody knew what he was going to say. And he said, Bo, it's gone. It's all gone. He turned around, got in his car, and left. <laughs> you know. oh. Now, Jim and I laughed about that at the end of the day. But what will make you cry with tears of profound gratitude and joy is the ability after the cross and belief in Jesus Christ to walk into the catacombs of our heart and say, It's gone. It's all gone. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? If you do, it's a high joy to come to these elements, and you are welcome to come with us. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, rather than avoid the table, why don't you open your heart to Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It is simply trusting in him that brings us unto salvation. Let us pray. Father, use this discipline of the table of our Lord to stir our hearts again at what you have done for us in Christ to bring us unto yourself. Praise be to God for this great salvation. Amen.